invite you to take your Bibles and turn, if you will, to the book of Philippians chapter 4. Paul's letter to the church at Philippi chapter 4. That's where we're going to be this morning, and as you're turning there, you ought to know what a privilege it is for me to be back home at Heritage Baptist Church. That's not a throwaway statement for me. As Jimmy already made clear, this church really is my home. This was the church that my family joined, I believe, when I was in the fourth grade or so. It was the church that the Lord saved me at. Uh, this was the church that I was baptized in by Pastor Jimmy Jackson. Uh, this is the church that taught me to love the Bible. And I will say this, and he's not here, so I wouldn't be buttering him up if he was sitting on the front row. It was your pastor, Marty Brown, that got me to love the Bible. And in particular, he taught me to appreciate what I'm sure you know well sitting under his ministry. And that's what we know as expository preaching, which basically means none other than this. You should not care at all what I have to say this morning if it's not right out of this book. So I'm not here on any authority on my own, nor is Marty or Jimmy or any other person who graces this pulpit. It is the word of God alone that is our authority, the foundation of our faith, and it was your pastor, Marty, who taught me it. I was here and discipled by the student pastor who has not aged Chad Kaczynski, kicker, wherever he is, you know, kicker looks exactly today like he did in 1999 when I came to this church. Tell me your secret, brother. I love this church. Heritage Baptist, it is my home, and it's a distinct privilege to be able to come back home here. I feel inextricably tied to this church, not only because my parents, Jim and Annette Smith, they still are active members of this church, have been since the mid to late 1990s. But because your pastors continue to reach out to me. Now, you may find this hard to believe, but Jim Jackson, this man has text messaged me every Sunday morning for the last, I don't know, 12 years since I've been gone from Heritage. He of his, and he's always the first one. I think in the last 12 years, I've probably beat him maybe five times. Every other time, it is your pastor, Jimmy, who has stayed in contact with me. Your pastor, Marty, he emails me all the time. And I thank God for this church. And as Jimmy already mentioned a little bit ago, I pray that what you get to observe today will not be uh, in the future an anomaly. That maybe five, ten years from now, there'll be another person up here opening God's word who is sitting right over there where I sat for many years. In fact, I tended to sit right at that pew right there. That was my Sunday spot. And I thank the Lord for being able to come back home and share God's word with you. Now today, I don't want to talk about the past. I want to talk about what lies ahead. It's December the 1st. A new year is upon us. We're all staring 2020 in the eyes. But you know what's, what's interesting is when you look ahead, you can't help but see in the rearview mirror. And when you're looking straight down the road at what lies ahead, your eyes just glance up and you can't help but see what's behind. And for many of you, if you glance in the rearview mirror, perhaps what you see is not altogether encouraging. Perhaps what lies ahead of you is tainted by what you can't help but see that was behind you. Maybe the year 2019 was a spiritually dry year for you. Maybe you're a student here today, and you know you're supposed to be here, but you just zone out every time the word's open. Maybe you've been coming here for years, and when you see songs being led by somebody as passionate as 
For example, CJ, who, by the way, he gave me, he's the only person who's ever given me piano lessons, and so I credit all of my musical ability to CJ Carpenter. You see a man up there as passionate as he is leading us in worship, and maybe you're thinking, man, I'm not like that at all. If I were to attempt that, it would be a facade. Maybe for you, the weight of whatever has occurred this year in your life is significant enough. It's weighty enough that you're here today and the prospects of 2020 are grim. And if that's you, God has a word for you today. I don't, he does. And it's right out of his word in Philippians chapter 4. For here in chapter 4, we're just going to read a couple verses and Lord willing exposit them. As we do, I want you to see with me Paul's secret. It shouldn't be a secret. But Paul's secret to faith, hope, and joy in the midst of a life that is as weighty and burdensome and trial-ridden, perhaps, as yours. Today, I want you to see that what Paul's secret was is one that's right in front of our eyes. And the vast majority of us in this room miss. And so if you have found Philippians chapter 4, I invite you to stand with me and honor the reading of God's word. Philippians chapter 4, I will begin in verse 4. And I'm going to read down just through verse 7. Philippians 4, beginning in verse 4, Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'm going to say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And hear now this precious promise, verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, it will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Would you join me as we pray? Our Father in heaven, I ask right now that you would come and do what I cannot, and that is take this word and apply it to the heart's of the dear brothers and sisters in Christ gathered here today. Thank you, Lord, for this heritage of faith that has marked me for the rest of my life. And I pray that the same ministry that marked me would mark every man and woman, boy and girl in this room. Would you raise up in this church men and women who love you, love your word, and are passionate for your name, for your glory, being spread amongst the neighborhoods and indeed the nations. So edify us today through your word as a means to that end. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. No man is greater than his prayer life. I don't know if that's exactly an encouraging statement. That statement has looked me square in the eye for the last 13, 14 years or so. When I first got a laptop in college, I took that statement and taped it to the monitor. 
and it has remained to this day. It's not original to me. It comes from a famous, uh, of his time anyway, you probably may not even know him, a guy named Leonard Ravenhill. He was an English evangelist, died in 1994 or so. I was first uh, introduced to that statement sitting in that pew right there because your pastor Marty, he read this in one of his early sermons in 2005, his first year of ministry here. The year, by the way, in which I was called to the ministry in this very room. And Marty continued to read. And I think this quote is in your bulletin if you just want to follow along with me. I want you to feel the weight of what Leonard Ravenhill wrote in just a simple little book called Why Revival Tarries. I can't recommend everything in the book. There's a few things that kind of make your head scratch. But generally speaking, it's a tremendous book. Very helpful. He continues. The pastor who's not praying, well, he's playing. The people who are not praying, they're straying. We have many organizers, but few agonizers. We have many players and payers, but few prayers. Many singers, few clingers. Many fears, few tears. Much fashion, little passion. Many interferers, few intercessors. Many riders, few fighters. Failing here, we fail everywhere. And I want you to think with me. Do you agree with that statement? I suspect that most of us in this room would say amen to the first half of that last sentence. Failing here. Okay. I come before you, and I will readily admit to you that if there is but one area of my walk with the Lord that is woefully deficient, that is a cause of conviction in my heart day in and day out, it is my prayer life. And I suspect I'm in good company. Most of us would admit that our prayer life at times, if not prevalently, tends to be weak. But I wonder how many of us would take the jump and we would say the last part of that statement. Failing here, we fail everywhere. Would you draw that connection? Would you say that your spiritual dryness this past year, you would draw a direct line from it to prayerlessness? Maybe the anxiety that feels like it's got you around the throat. Would you draw a line from it to prayerlessness? Maybe the creeping doubt that is just constantly around you. Would you say that that is a symptom of your lack of a prayer life? Paul would. Because here in Philippians chapter 4, Paul shows us the secret to his joy and faith in hope in the midst of a life that would never appear from an outside perspective to yield hope and joy. Paul's secret that he makes clear in this text we just read is he says his secret is prayer. Now I want you to stop because if you're about to tune me out thinking this is going to be another pray more sermon, if only I prayed more, everything would fix. That is not Paul's point. Paul is not asking for some sort of just quantity. He is calling us to a revolutionary way to view prayer. He is not saying pray three, four, or five times a day. Paul is turning that whole idea upside down on its head. 
And he is bidding that you and I be called to a life of prayer. You see, in my judgment, the main point of this text is this, and may this be laid upon your heart this morning. If you hear anything else, hear this. A life of prayer is the only path to peace. If you are longing for a joy or a hope or a peace that seems to elude you today, hear this, dear brother or sister. It is a life of prayer that will only pave that path to peace for you. So the question that we need to ask ourselves, step back for a second, is what exactly is a life of prayer? What does he mean? What do I mean by that? And then how does that actually get me the peace that Paul seems to promise? I want you to look with me, if you will, at verse 6. We're going to go from 4 to 7, but I just want to draw our attention at the beginning to the middle of the text. Verse 6, I want you to notice with me. He says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving. Paul is basically saying, in every moment of every day, every breath you draw, every beat of your heart, in everything, he is saying, pray. And he uses three synonyms to describe prayer. He says, I mean, you guys can read, he says, by prayer. He says, by supplications. He also uses the word requests. Three words that mean the same thing. They are basically inferring for us a heart of dependence. This is what Paul is calling us to. In everything, be dependent on God. Did you all notice there was a word I skipped over? One other word, it's a qualifying word. One word that describes this type of dependence. Verse 6, with thanksgiving. In other words, he is calling you and I to a grateful dependence on him. Not a dutiful dependence, but a one of delight. Like your wall says right outside the worship center. He is calling you and I to live in such a way that moment by moment, day by day, we are depending on the Lord. That is a life of prayer. Now, this is not something original to Paul in Philippians chapter 4. Perhaps you've read Paul's letters and you've scratched your head when he again and again and again calls us to always be praying. I remember as a child hearing that thinking, I can't do that. I got to eat. I got to shower. I got to go to school. What does that mean? Paul says to the church at Thessalonica, pray without ceasing. He says to the church at Colossae, devote yourselves to prayer, okay? He says to the church at Ephesus, pray at all times. All times? He says to the church at Rome, without ceasing, I pray for you. No, you're not for real, Paul. That's not true. Without ceasing? You see, what Paul is doing is he is calling you and I to reorient the way we look at prayer. That prayer is not merely a moment before a meal. Prayer is not merely a moment in a service. Prayer is not merely a moment before bedtime. Prayer is not merely a moment when you're feeling frustrated. Prayer is a way of living. He is calling you and I to live in prayer. Pray in everything without ceasing. And in this text, he shows us three ways, in my judgment anyway, three ways this life of prayer, this lifestyle of praying, three different ways this life of prayer leads to peace. Three ways a life of prayer is the only path to peace.
peace. And so if you're taking notes, mark this down. Number one, and we're going to see this in verses four and five. A life of prayer, here's what it does. It frees you and I from the tyranny. I want you to think about that word, tyranny. The tyranny of our circumstances. Have you ever noticed that oftentimes in our lives, we are ruled by our circumstances? Have you ever noticed that your mood, your attitude, your actions, oftentimes, in fact, I'm guessing more often than not, are dictated by your circumstances? Let's just look back in the rearview mirror again. Last January, you had great resolve, didn't you? You were going to be in the Word every day. You were going to be at the gym every day. You were going to eat right every day. And then what happened? Circumstances. And those circumstances started to grip you. And before you know it, all those resolutions were gone. Maybe, students, you've been at camp, and you felt, or at Barnabas, or whatever that event you were at, and you really were on fire for the Lord, and you just found this fervor that you hadn't had in a while, and then what happened? You left camp, you left Barnabas, you spent a week in school, and before you know it, that fervor started to fade. That red-hot passion, like a coal being pulled out of the fire, started to grow cold and dark. Circumstances tend to rule us. And Paul, in Philippians chapter 4, is helping us see that if you and I live in prayer, we will at last be freed from the tyranny of the circumstances of our life. And so let me just show you this. In verses 4 and 5, let's read beginning in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Always. Really, Paul? Always? What if you were like the man in my church in North Carolina? For years tried to have a child with his wife. She underwent some medical treatment to enable her to conceive. Had a child, a beautiful baby girl. And doctors believe as a result of that treatment, got breast cancer. And we just buried her a couple years ago. Now how on earth does that man look Philippians chapter 4 in the eye and say, that makes sense. Rejoice always. You guys have your own illustration. Just fill in the line. Rejoice always. Paul is calling us in this verse to open our eyes to this wonderful reality that when you live in prayer, number one, guess what happens? It changes something in you. It changes the source of your joy. Here's how that works. He says, rejoice always. I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. I'm not exaggerating here. You can do this. How? Did you notice the the phrase I left out? Rejoice in what? The Lord. Paul is saying, no matter your circumstances, if you live in prayer, you can find yourself rejoicing despite your circumstances because your joy is no longer in them. Your joy is now in the Lord. And so, dear brother or sister, I plead with you today that if joy eludes you, if you feel choked by your circumstances, break free by living day by day, moment by moment, in conscious dependence on God. For when you do, guess what will happen? You will no longer find your source of joy in 
your circumstances. Your joy will be in the Lord. And you can say with Paul, who wrote this epistle while in prison, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. It'll change the source of your joy. But there's another thing that prayer will do. If you live in constant prayer, it'll not only change the source of your joy, thanks be to God, it's going to change your attitude. Look, if you will, with me at verse 5. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everybody. That word reasonableness, hmm. He's basically saying every last one of us in this room ought to be known by that word. Now, let's take a little self-examination. What words would your children use to describe you? What word would your spouse use to describe you? Is the word reasonableness in your top three or five or ten? That word reasonableness, epi case, that word means kind of like a gentleness or a graciousness. Paul is saying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the full authority of the Godhead, he is saying, you and I, we ought to be known by this. In fact, he says, it ought to be known to everybody. So that means it's not something just your spouse knows. It means it ought to mark us. I and you ought to be known for our reasonableness. Now the question is, how could we possibly be known by that when you have a wayward child? How can you be known as gracious when your child is running from the faith, when your child is doing things that just burden your soul, when the last thing you feel at that moment is to be gracious? How do you do this when you have a co-worker who is constantly cutting you, uh, knocking you down, who is constantly talking about you behind your back? How do you do this when you're the victim of gossip? How can you be known by reasonableness when you are at odds with your spouse day in and day out? How do you do it when you have an overbearing boss? How do you do it when you're stressed? How, Paul, how could we let our reasonableness be known to everyone when our circumstances seem to dictate otherwise? And Paul's word to you and to I is that when we live in prayer, when we moment by moment, day by day, depend on God in conscious prayer, guess what happens? Our attitude starts to change. We no longer depend on circumstances for our attitude. When I am living moment by moment at my job, which by the way, as a pastor, I have a job. I deal with difficult people all day, every single day. And I have to pray. Not just because I'm paid to. I have to. Because I will not be that reasonable. I'm not the most naturally merciful and gracious person. I have to plead with the Lord to make my reasonableness, my graciousness be known to all. I must plead with him. And guess what happens? When I do this, he starts to chisel within me. And no longer am I ruled by the tyranny of my circumstances. I can see people with a whole new attitude. Praise be to God if you live in prayer, if in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving you present your request to God, your reasonableness will be known to all. That's a second way circumstances get turned around when we live in prayer. There's one third and final one I see, and that's in the latter half of verse 5. You notice I didn't read this last phrase. He says, the Lord is at hand. Now what does it mean when you say something is at hand? Well, I could say that Jimmy Jackson is at hand. He is near me. That's a spatial reference. He's close by. 
Or I could say, lunch is at hand. It is coming soon. It's a temporal. It's time. We don't really know what Paul's referring to here. Honestly, it doesn't really matter. It could mean one or the other. At the heart of it, this is what we believe Paul is saying. Paul is saying, hey, wake up. Wake up. Your circumstances are not everything. Wake up. The Lord is at hand. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And all the things of this world, your circumstances, they're going to grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Do you realize how tough it is to live in light of eternity? Mercy, it is so difficult. Mark this verse down. Put it on your fridge. Put it on your... uh, dashboard put it on your uh, bathroom mirror this is one that you need to meditate on lord knows i do second corinthians chapter 4 beginning in verse 17 for this light momentary affliction you fill in the blank it is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory that weight far exceeds any weight of your present circumstances as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. You see, for the things that are seen, they're transient. They're just kind of blowing in and out. But the things that are unseen, they're eternal. One third way that a life of prayer frees us from the tyranny of circumstances is, guess what? It changes our perspective on things. Do you find yourself with just such a low perspective? Do you find yourself often myopic, nearsighted? You're only seeing what's right in front of you. You just can't have the long view in mind. Are the present burdensome circumstances in your life clouding your judgment? Give yourself to a life of prayer and watch that perspective change. Watch these corrective lenses come onto your eyes. Watch yourself live in such a way that no longer are your circumstances ruling and reigning over you. That's the first main point of today's message. A life of prayer, it frees us from all the circumstances that we brought into this room. But there's a second glorious truth, a second way a life of prayer is the only path to peace. Number two, mark this down if you're taking notes. A life of prayer, guess what? It doesn't just free us from the tyranny of circumstances, it frees you and I from the tyranny of anxiety. Whether you are clinically anxious or just anxious. All of us know what a cruel dictator anxiety can be. Oftentimes, it can feel like it has a totalitarian grip in your life. It controls your emotions. It can feel like it can control your physical body. It can control your spirituality. It can feel like it can control your psychological part of your life. It just feels like it clouds everything. And so today, if you are somebody who's prone more than others to anxiousness, to anxiety, perhaps verse 6 strikes you as callous. You see Paul say, do not be anxious. And you're like, Paul, it's not that simple. I mean, I would if I could, but I can't. Do not be anxious, Paul says. How? Did you notice that Paul doesn't just stop there? He isn't some cold, aloof guy that just says, snap out of it, grow up, 
Quit having a pity party. Your life is better than you think. Just think about those who are less fortunate than you. That is not the direction Paul goes. When Paul commands us with the authority of the Holy Spirit of God to say, do not be anxious, he is not saying snap out of it. Instead, he is calling us to replace it with something else. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but what? In everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Meaning, replace your anxious care with prayer. You see, one way a life of prayer frees us from the tyranny of anxiety is it changes our habits. How many of you find yourself in this old rut, this old habit, that whenever something happens that gets you anxious, you start to withdraw? Maybe you, you get angry. Maybe you self-medicate. You, you, you know what you do. And what Paul is calling you and I to do is if you give yourself to a life of prayer, it'll change those habits. In that moment, when an anxious care comes upon you, a new habit will form if you live in constant dependence on God. That new habit will look something like this. Cast all your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. At that moment, you will just lay them because you recognize if you try to handle them yourself, it's like handling a snake. It's going to bite you. Just cast them at his feet. Now, how do you do that? How do you get that habit to change? It's not going to happen if you don't live in prayer until times get tough. If you are not consciously, moment by moment, depending on God, and then all of a sudden something comes in and you, into your life that is horrible and you're, you're anxious beyond belief, don't think that at that moment you're going to have the fortitude, you're going to have the habit, the force of habit, to at that moment, I'm going to cast those cares on him. You guys know your life, and Lord knows I know mine. What do we tend to do? Mercy, we get anxious, and we get all worked up. Cast your anxieties on him. Jesus himself made this clear in his earthly ministry. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 and 30. You guys remember his, his well-known story when he says, Do not be anxious about your life. That can sound callous too. What you will eat, what you will drink. Don't worry about your body, what you're going to put on. And then he tells us why. You see, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is a life today, and of course it's tomorrow, it's going to be gone. Grass withers, flowers fade. Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? This is our risen Lord declaring to us, do not be anxious. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers of history, if only there were an audio recordings of him, he said famously, the very essence of anxious care is imagining that we are wiser than God. I want you to think about that. The essence of your anxiousness that you've brought into this room today, the very essence of it is not just some sort of clinical issue. It's not just some disposition you have. It's not just some realistic circumstance in your life. The very essence of our anxious care is us believing that we are wiser than God. Oh, dear brother or sister, would you give yourself to a life of 
conscious dependence on God, a life of prayer, as it were, and find yourself freed from the tyranny of anxiety for when you do, it's going to change your habits. And at that moment, you will stop and not be anxious. You will cast those cares upon him. But did you notice there's one phrase in this text that should really make us think. In verse 6, he says, do not be anxious. What does he say? About anything. 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 How, let's just kind of go back to this thought experiment. How is that possible? How can we truly not be anxious about anything? What if you were here today in the midst of an enormous medical trial? Maybe today your marriage is collapsing and it just seems insane to not be here anxious. How can we truly not be anxious about anything? Anything? Dear brother and sister, guess what? When you live in prayer, it's not only going to change your habits, it's going to change your view of God. You're going to start to see God for who he really is. He's not a last resort. He's everything. He's not somebody you come to merely in a time of need. He is somebody in whose presence you are already there when that time of need comes. You're going to start seeing God not just as a fixation of your mind on a Sunday or in moments of stress throughout the week. He will become indeed everything to you. This is the fruit of of a life of prayer where you are moment by moment depending on him and he becomes everything to you. And when he does, praise be to him, you will at last be freed from the tyranny of anxious care. That's verse 6. But if we were to conclude today, as wonderful as these truths are, we would miss immense riches that behold us in verse 7. For in verse 7, we see a most precious promise. And let's just frame it like this to conclude our time together today. Number three, the third big and final point, a life of prayer, it frees you and I from the tyranny, not just of our circumstances, not just of anxiety. It frees us from the tyranny of doubt. Maybe you don't regard yourself as a particularly doubtful person. Maybe you feel like your faith is really strong. But I wonder how many of you today in the quiet recesses of your own heart could admit that there is a cold, quiet rationalism deep within that makes you wonder whether or not prayer actually is effective. I wonder how many of you today would say your experience leads you to believe that prayer is perfunctory. It's not necessary. It's just extra. I wonder how many of us by our lives could with integrity attest that we tend to doubt whether or not prayer does anything. We tend to doubt whether or not God hears our prayers. We tend, we tend, we tend to doubt. And if that's you, I want you to hear this final wonderful promise from our Savior. For you see in verse 7, he says that if in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving you present your request to God, guess what? The promise to you is a peace that surpasses all understanding. It will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. 
Let's frame it like this. You see, when we give ourselves to conscious daily dependence on God, when we live in prayer, as it were, guess what? It will change, first off, it's going to change your expectations, particularly of God. How many of you, when you pray, you are praying really not, not my will, but yours be done. You are praying not your will, but mine be done. And then when he doesn't respond in kind, you respond with doubt. How many of you, when you do pray in the midst of trials and circumstances, plead, God, get rid of them. God, I want peace. And I want the peace that the world would call peace. I stand before you as one who has many times. But did you notice how he describes the peace in verse 7? What kind of peace does God promise us? He calls it a peace that surpasses understanding. You know what that means? It means if you're a student and you are pleading with God to give you peace in the midst of trials in school, the peace he promises you is not to be homecoming queen. The peace he promises you is not the girlfriend you wanted. The peace he promises you, dear brother or sister, is not the income you desire or for your wayward child to come home at your beck and call. He calls it a peace that doesn't make sense. That's what it means to surpass understanding. Which means your lost neighbor, your unbelieving mother, your child who doesn't walk with the Lord is going to say, I don't get why you have peace. You should not be at peace. Your life should be a wreck right now. Why are you not a wreck? Why have you not turned your back on God? Like Job's wife, pleading, why do you have this peace? This is the peace that God promises. He will change your expectations on him when you start living day by day, moment by moment, consciously dependent on him. He'll change those expectations, and you will enjoy a peace that doesn't make sense. While your world seems to be falling apart, your feet will be on the firm foundation of his word, and you will say, no matter what comes my way, I am trusting in him. This is the peace he promises. A life of prayer, it frees you from the tyranny of doubt by changing your expectations. But it does one final thing for us. A life of prayer, it frees you not just from your wrong expectations on God. It's going to change your confidence. Where do you find your confidence today? What gives you confidence this moment? You see, your job is a really, really poor shield. If that is your armor, if that's what's guarding your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Your spouse is a really poor helmet. Your income is a poor, poor breastplate. You name it, you fill in the blank. What, what is guarding your heart and your mind this moment? Wherein lies your confidence? Paul concludes in verse 7 by beckoning us to remember that when we live in prayer, guess what happens? The peace of God that doesn't make any sense to this world, it will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. If you give yourself to daily, moment by moment, conscious dependence on God, a life of prayer, not a life with your eyes closed, but a life of, Lord, I need you, I need you, I need you, 
you will find the fog of doubt blowing away. You will find the grip of anxiety being loosened and freed from you. You will find the tyranny, the shackles of your circumstances falling away if you give yourself to living a life of prayer. But I would be remiss if I concluded today without noticing with you those three final words that conclude verse 7. Three words that qualify everything I've said today. You see, dear brother or sister, all these promises that God has given us, they are not given widely. They are given to those who are in Christ Jesus. And if today you are not in Christ Jesus, then the call of God to you is that you would come, that you would see that He has lived the life you never could live. He perfectly kept God's law. He never once sinned. He died the death, taking the punishment that you and I deserved. He rose from the dead for your salvation. He has called you to Himself. He calls you to repent. He calls you to believe. Today, if you are not in Christ Jesus, if you hear anything, the only path to peace for you is that you come to Christ. You see, a life of prayer, it's not just acts. It's not just being more religious. Oh, so far from that. A life of prayer is a daily, moment-by-moment, genuine relationship, communion with the living and resurrected Lord, Jesus Christ. So you must be in Christ Jesus if you are to experience the peace that surpasses understanding. But for the rest of us, I suspect the majority of us in this room this morning, for you the call is clear. If you have been walking with the Lord for some time, but you know that as you look in ahead to 2020, you can't help but see in that rearview mirror all the weight of this past year. May you give yourself to conscious, dependent prayer on God. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everybody. The Lord is at hand. Brothers and sisters, do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer, supplication, with thanksgiving, just present those requests to God, and thanks be to Him, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. It will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Would you join me as we pray? And as we do, I just want to invite you to take a moment, as CJ makes his way up here, to lead us in a song of response. Quietly reflect in your own mind and heart where you are. I don't know. There's no way for me to know. But you do. Silently cry out to him and ask the Lord of the universe to open your eyes. Oh, hear his call to turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and of his grace. Let me pray to this end, and then we'll stand together and we'll sing 
of the wonder of Jesus, whom I pray we will commune with daily, moment by moment in 2020, living, as it were, a life of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we ask now that you would come and that you would open blind eyes. There are people who have heard many sermons who are not in Christ Jesus. There are people who know a lot about you, but do not know you. And so today I plead that you would do what I cannot, and that is this moment open their eyes to see you. Lord, today there are many in this room who have walked with you for years, who love you, who have tasted and seen your goodness, but are mired down today in the weight in the slog of circumstances who are choked by the anxiety they've brought in whose minds and hearts are cold due to a quiet cynicism a creeping doubt I pray Lord that you would by the power of your Holy Spirit through the medium of living in prayer drive all these things away and free dear brothers and sisters here May we live this coming year a life of prayer for the glory of your name, for the good of this church, and for the advance of the gospel in our homes, in our places of employment, in this city, and indeed around the world. So do this now, Lord, for Jesus' sake. Turn our eyes upon him. In Jesus' name we pray.